let's begin with prayer. Father, I pray that uh, today you would be our teacher and that you would open up your word to us uh, and that um, we would see Jesus in new ways. And I pray that your spirit would be present guiding us. Amen. Then for, for those of you who weren't here, uh, let me just briefly explain the idea of the J-curve. Uh, and, and the idea is, it, like, like the letter J, uh, the, the Christian life goes down into death and then up into resurrection. And the, I like the J because it goes higher uh, on the upside. And this is a very big theme all through the New Testament, uh, but I'm particularly sitting on Paul's treatment of it. Paul talks more about the J-curve that, that, we, that, that the Christian, the normal Christian life is dying and rising with Jesus, uh, he, he talks more about the J-curve than he does justification by faith. It, it's a very big part. And, and one of the scriptures that we looked at was Philippians 3, 10, and 11, where Paul says, I want to know Christ, and uh, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. So you can see that downward move of the J and then coming up into resurrection. And for Paul, that was how he did life. Now, let, let me uh, tell you a story of uh, just a little mini J-curve experience that I had, and it, 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 the uh, suffering in it is really minor. And it happened at a prayer seminar uh, that I was doing at a very prominent church, a uh, very prominent Reformed church. And uh, the, uh, there were about 45 people there. Uh, it was the, all, all their um, uh, leading, uh, I don't know if all the pastors, but all their leading senior pastors were there. And because um, uh, it, it, they had a big pastoral staff. So there were about 45 people in the room. And uh, what we do when I do our prayer seminar is we begin with a time of quiet prayer, and then I ask people what that was like. like what, and it's like a four-minute time where they just pray quietly, and then I, and I say, what was it like? Tell me what was that like. And, um, and when I, I ask that question from, from this group, I had a response like I had never had before, um, which was nothing. No one would say anything. I mean, it was like absolutely pulling teeth. And the reason it was like pulling teeth is about a third of them were openly on their phones or their iPads. And uh, they were paying my organization, See Jesus, quite a bit of money. And, um, and but the, it was a, uh, there, there were a lot of, um, you know, important people in the room. And, you know, they're, you, you know, from their perspective, they're used to being in business meetings where they're multitasking. It's kind of how you do it. And it just seemed like a discussion that they didn't have to pay attention to. Anyway, it was the hardest seminar I've ever done. I mean, I couldn't get anybody to say, I, I think the, because many of the leaders were on their phones or, or computers, I think that sort of intimidated everybody else. They were kind of afraid to join in. And uh, later on, so that was a Friday night, 
um, I, I mean, I'll just tell you one, one, one thing. It was so bad that the, the executive pastor came to me Saturday morning and said, I'm sorry about last night, and, uh, I've, um, and, and would you mind if I made an announcement to everybody to put their phones away? I said, yeah, that would be, I would really appreciate that. But when I was debriefing for, with um, one of our staff who came, uh, uh, he, he was, uh, on Friday night, I was debriefing from the seminar, and, and I ended up having a good time. I shifted how I did the seminar. I kind of went to lecture. I thought, well, if they're not going to interact, I'm just going to talk. And so I just talked, and it, it ended up being a pretty good seminar. And we went out to dinner with them, and you know I, I had a good time. But anyway, when I was debriefing with our staff member who came, he, he was just kind of incredulous that Friday night and saying, um, what, why would they spend that money and not pay attention to you? You, you know, it just like it didn't make any sense. And he, he was just, um, there were a few other little things that happened too. And, and uh, he's, uh, his name is Bob, and he's uh, director of our Praying Life Ministry. And he'd never seen anything like that before. He'd been sitting in the back. And I said, Bob, it's not that complicated. They, the, here, I, you know, I use my arm as the failure boasting chart, and I'll do it with you. Uh, the opposite of the J curve is the fail, is the boast, you know, failure at the bottom, boasting at the top. I said, Bob, it wasn't that complicated. Uh, uh, they were here on the failure boasting chart, and I was here. I was lower than them. So they were relating to me be out because I had less value to them. Therefore, it was, uh, it was not as important for them to be attentive to me. I said, it's not that complicated. It's just they were on the failure boasting chart. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so where was I on that, and what was I doing? Uh, their, uh, their inattentiveness, I, I was immediately aware of what was going on. Their, inner t their inattentiveness drew me into a fellowship of his suffering. And it's about as mild as you can get in suffering. Like if, if there's a meter of suffering of 1 to 100, that's like 1.5, okay? You know, or, you know, or maybe 0.5. But still, life is filled with those little slights and insults and things that just kind of get under your skin. Um, and uh, so, so just think of how this works then with the J-curve. Um, their treatment of me forced me into Christ. You see that? And it actually freed my spirit up because uh, I didn't have to live on their narrative. Does that make sense? Like, uh, like their narrative was I was less important to them and they were relating to me out of how they were valuing me. I didn't have to live in their story. Paul, in fact, in verse um, 8, of that Romans, uh, that same passage that we that I just quoted, Philippians three, as as many of you know, uh, Paul calls that entire failure boasting chart rubbish, you know. And a lot of times we'll think, oh, it's rubbish how they're how, how they're treating me. No, no, no. Paul says the entire narrative of how you're doing in relationship to other people is rubbish, and and you probably know it's it's a lot stronger word than rubbish it's dog manure you know and there's better words than that that i won't say here that could you could use for that but it, it pulses that whole system 
of trying to get above people or being mad that you're below people uh, is just rubbish. And, and so that frees me not to be angry at them. And it frees me to love them. So in other words, just to state the story again in a slightly different way, their treatment of me weakened me. At that point, when, when I did that seminar, I'd probably done about 100 uh, of our prayer seminars. And uh, here I was doing another prayer seminar. I'd done 100 of them, and I didn't know how to lead it. So I was weak. So what, am I do? so what do I do? What's my first move? And as soon as I find him on a J-curve, I pray. Because, and I become like a little child. So I'm at this seminar praying Father, show me what to do. I don't know how to do this. So it, it doesn't have to mean, see, so that, that transforms the entire um, narrative and kills the danger of bitterness or gossip or crankiness. I kind of even forgot about it. So and you could just how, how, how to participate in the dying of Christ frees your spirit to love people. And God freed my spirit to love people. And, you know, I'm thinking, what was my, my resurrection for that? Is I got a really great story to explain the J-curve, you know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll take any kind of resurrection. Now, what, what's striking to me about that situation is that um, the the... This was a church that loved the gospel. And I'm not, I mean, and it was part of the gospel movement um, and really knew that the gospel applied to all of life, that it wasn't just for salvation. That, that, um, but, but they had put the gospel as an overlay over essentially a pagan power structure. Do, do, does that make sense? In other words, the failure boasting chart is essentially a pagan way of doing life. It's just, it's just our flesh, but it's also paganism. And uh, I have encountered that in many uh, places in the church. Uh, and it, it's one of the things I just want to talk briefly about is that, uh, and, and let me give you one example. I um, grew up in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So on the failure boasting chart, we're a little above the PCA. Um, on, you have to know the OPC and anyway. It's kind of an inside joke. Um, but, um, uh, which I, I love that heritage. Uh, I spent most of my life in, in, in the OPC. So I, I studied the shorter catechism. You know, I memorized the children's catechism. Um, and after this great introduction in the children's catechism uh, to uh, God, the fall, sin, and redemption, when we talk about how to do the Christian life, we immediately go into the Ten Commandments. Now, I think probably for a kid, that's a really good thing to do. But, but you see that pattern throughout the catechisms of the Reformation, and, it, and, and there is some reflection of that. There, there's no narrative structure to being good. You follow me? In other words, it's a, so being good then simply becomes, so I'm saved, okay? I'm saved by my faith in the gospel in Jesus Christ, by 
you know, I'm saved by justification by faith. And then when I do the Christian life, it, it easily translates into being good. And what you see with the J-curve, Paul, Paul is very happy to give lists of being good. But what he has surrounding them and interlaced all through them in uh, Colossians 3, in Romans 8, in Romans 6, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, um, and all of Philippians and all of First and Second Corinthians, it's dominated by this idea that the, the I-beam structure, like if you, you know, think of a building, like this building here that we're in is held up by I-beams that we can't see. And, and what's on top of this is not the supporting structure, but the veneer over it. You need both. And so it's like the J-curve operates as the hidden I-beam structure of the Christian life. And, and on that I-beam of dying, you know, of, of, of being conformed into his death, joining Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings, and, and, then, and then tasting and reliving uh, the power of his resurrection, on that um, uh, I-beam structure, you can handle goodness. You know, that, the I-beam the, the I structure of the dying and rising of Jesus can handle a tremendous load of, of being, of, of just old-fashioned, the beauty of being a lovely person inside and out. But you need that inner structure. So we begin with faith in Christ. So the gospel is what we believe, and then it's something that we reenact. So that my whole life is a continual reenacting of the dying and rising of Christ. Let me just relate that with what, uh, uh, um, oh, here's my punchline for that. That, weak, that. that is a weakness within the evangelical tradition. and Because it's almost, you hardly ever hear about that primary structure. Some theologians will, will talk about it. They're very familiar with it. Just in terms of the, the, the general, what we tell people how to be good, the being good just kind of sits out as sort of application. It's not a way of, oh, here's a related thought uh, that, that, that I did mention very briefly yesterday, that it's not nearly, the, the J-curve is not nearly um, a, a life of love it, it, as you go into the J-curve, it becomes a way of knowing Jesus. You see that? And we're so used to think of knowing as um, merely propositional. It is that, and I never want to take that away. Propositions underline every aspect of our faith, and I've given you a lot of propositions here. But there's a kind of knowing of Christ that only occurs as you enter into his death. As you recapitulate, as you reenact his dying in your relationships, in your life. As you go through. And what I did in that seminar um, at that church was I, I, their treatment of me drew me into a fellowship with Jesus. And so I can receive the suffering. I don't have to fight against it. Let, let me tell you another uh, story just to explain this idea. Um, uh, this was at a, um, a Johnny Camp 
Um, they, these are camps for families that have children with uh, disabilities. And um, uh, what people will do is they'll raise funds, uh, like, like they pay their own money to go there and serve for a week. So my family with our daughter who's disabled, we go to this camp every year and we get assigned aides, like just people like you who, who come and they volunteer for a week of their time. Anyway, that's just the backdrop. And uh, my, my wife on Monday of the camp had met this woman, Kayla, who was one of these aides. She was not our aide, she was assigned to another task. And, um, um, and then, so that was Monday, and, and they became good friends. They, they were kind of, they, they just sort of enjoyed one another. And on Tuesday, uh, at another part of the camp, uh, during the lunch line, or one of the, it might have been breakfast, um, I'm actually sure, n I, I, I'm, I'm not sure when it happened. Another parent at the camp, like my wife and I, uh, when she was in the food line with Kayla, overheard Kayla make fun of or belittle her parenting, how she was taking care of her kids. And uh, this woman was really offended by that and went to the camp leadership about it. And um, a lot of people started talking about it. And they brought Kayla in. And they said, Kayla, the, you know, this woman says you did this. And Kayla says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't do that. And the mom insisted. And Kayla said, I didn't do that. And it just became, um, I mean, people didn't get you know, wound up or mad. Or at least I don't think so. But a lot of people knew about this story. And um, it just, there was no resolution. By the end of the day, Tuesday, there was no resolution. And it was just one of those murky people problems that just wouldn't go away. So Wednesday, Kayla came to Jill and myself, Wednesday morning, completely distraught. And now, so, and it's just, uh, you know, what do I, I didn't do this. I don't know why the woman said this, to, you know, about me. And, um, and, uh, I mean, so what does it feel like for Kayla uh, to be at this camp for the rest of the week? It's only three more days, but it, it, it just, you know, people are looking at you. There's this word about you going on, and you just, uh, you, you know, you, you wish you weren't there at camp. You just kind of want to get the week over with because it was such a huge drama thing, and there were far too many people who knew about it, uh, and... You know, so it ended up, when people do a lot of talking, it just kind of intensifies things. And I said, Kayla, you have to look at camp this way. Here's you, and here's camp. And uh, on Monday, um, uh, you were giving of your time and your energy, your money, and you were receiving back from the camp just the joy of being able to help people, uh, being part of a team, people thanking you. And I said, that's a really good exchange. And I said, now on Wednesday, Kayla, um, you are now doing the same thing. You're giving your time and your money and your energy and you're receiving back shame. And I said, now, Kayla, you've entered into the fellowship of his suffering. And this is your glory. I mean, Kayla looked at me like I was a Martian, you know, 
but having been in, in situations a lot worse than that many times, just the, the joy of enduring in that kind of situation. And she just had three days to endure with, and, and it was over. Uh, but but it, it is a, uh, it, what, what it does, here's, think of, imagine Kayla in the center here with Kayla's options. Kayla's options are gossip. Did you hear what this, you know, look what this woman did to me. Um, you know, another option would be, um, uh, you know, uh, I just can't wait to get out of the camp. You know, just, I'll just hold my nose. I'll never come back again. Another option is just kind of irritated at the whole camp, just kind of angry at the camp at how they, they treated her, that so many people knew about this, even though they never said she did anything wrong. And, and uh, those are the doors that people tend to take. And the, the door that I was opening her from the Apostle Paul is that, that she could join Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and say simply, Father, you, you know, you, I, I take this cup like Jesus did at Gethsemane. You know, I receive it. This is something my father has brought into his life, and I wonder what the resurrection will be. Um, and and well, I, I have watched Kayla, that was about eight years ago, over the years, and she has continued to come back. She's, she's a leader in the camp, and she's, she's just a delight. It's, it's, you know, it's wonderful to see her. She didn't take any of the other doors. And, you know, as problems go, that was a small problem. Um, and how, how would I say this? Um, if you look at your Bibles in, um, let's look at, uh, I can't show, I'll, I'll, I'll just read this text to you. Don't worry about um, uh, getting this uh, up here. I have to find where my program is. Okay. Um, All right, uh, I'm in uh, Philippians 3, verse 9, um, um, where Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through faith in, from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's justification by faith. Think of this as a triangle, and justification by faith is the bottom of the triangle, okay? Okay. Um, uh, Luther's rediscovery of justification by faith, which Calvin and the other reformers, ex, you know, expanded on, is the foundation of our faith. In other words, I come to Christ not with my sufferings, not with my love, not with a mixture of my love and, and faith, but I come, but I come with the only thing I bring to the table is my complete inability. And I rely completely on Christ and his righteousness and his ability. That's the foundation to my life. And, but that's the bottom half of the triangle. But the top half of the triangle is the next verse, is verse 10, because it's the second thing. Paul wants two things. He, he, he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. That's the bottom of the triangle. He also wants to participate 
in the dying and rising of Christ. That's verse 10. That's the fellowship of his suffering. That's sharing in his suffering. And Protestantism is really weak at the top end of the triangle. Our, our evangelical faith gives, pays very little attention to that. We will, you, you'll hear sermons, or you'll, you'll, you know, you'll hear a lot of sermons on obedience, but there's no narrative of the gospel that, that shapes it. And the danger of that, when you just focus principally on justification by itself and isolate it from the J-curve, is, um, is, and it's really the sins of Western civilization, and I would say the dominant sins in Western civilization are individualism, materialism, and just narcissism. You know, because if... If the only thing you sit on is justification by faith, then you don't have any platform for love. You have no narrative. You know, if the only thing is if it's Jesus' death for me and not my death for you, then you'll begin to turn inward. And you'll completely misunderstand how the Christian life works. So you need the bottom of the triangle, justification by faith, but you need the top of the triangle, which is this, um, that, you know, it, it's, it's, let me put it this way. It's two distinct ways of knowing that complement one another, okay? The one, the bottom of the triangle is knowing by faith. The top of the triangle is knowing by love. Now, the reverse problem is also true. If you take the bottom of the triangle away and just have the top, you have the medieval mind. The medieval mind was dominated. The early church in the medieval mind was dominated by the J-curve. In fact, that's what Luther reacted to because the J-curve had become, I need to, um, uh, you know, get rid of my, uh, you know, I, you, you know, my, I have to pay for my sins. My suffering in union with Christ, pays for my sin. So Luther, in discovering justification by faith, said, no, 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 that's wrong. But there's a tendency in our tradition, because the J-curve was so abused by the medieval church in excess, to throw it out and ignore it. It makes us nervous. Does that make sense? Uh, but we need both the foundation of justification by faith and we need the, the participation in the dying of Christ. Here's my other way. Let me take two icons and put together. It's like we need Luther as the foundation, his insight, and we need Mother Teresa who, who embodies the justification, by, who, who embodies the J-curve in much of her life. And, and the reason I say that is because secular liberalism, uh, which is just... Um, uh, Jesus, um, uh, secular liberalism is the person of Jesus stripped of his divinity and then stripped of his humanity. So imagine um, a circle here, and the center of it is Jesus' divinity, and the outer ring of the circle, the donut, is his humanity. So his divinity is in the center, his humanity is around the outside. The first thing secular liberalism did 200 years ago was it erased his divinity. But for 200 years, it hung on and paid lip service to his humanity. I mean, it, it, an example of that is Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, his famous Jefferson Bible, 
where he took the uh, the, new t- uh, the the Gospels, I think. I just think he did the Gospels uh, and cut out all references to the miracles because he just wanted the teaching of Jesus without the any reference to anything spiritual. Um, the next stage um, in secular liberalism after it erased the divinity, and this happened in the late 50s and early 60s, was it, it began to erase the humanity of Jesus. And um, I was listening to NPR a couple of lectures ago uh, on my way home from work, and they were talking about um, uh, who were the liberal thinkers shaping their thinking because there, there had been this conservative challenge that there are no really seminal liberal thinkers like, uh, I, like Ayn Rand. And uh, so there was a call-in host. And, and who, what thinkers lie behind secular liberalism? And I'm talking to the radio. If it was a call-in, I might have been, well, it was a call-in, but I wasn't going to call in. I, I, I was like, it's Jesus, you know, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, but they had lost, and finally, right as I said that to the radio, I was talking to the radio, uh, someone called up and said, Jesus. And uh, the the commentator kind of dismissed it um, because that commentator had lost touch with secular liberalism's roots in, um, uh, in, in the person of Jesus. And now the third stage of secular liberalism uh, well, maybe it's the second stage, is, so it, it's erased Jesus completely, but what it hung on to uh, is all the attributes of Christ. So every aspect of secular liberalism um, takes a part of Jesus and makes it into a law. So um, um, compassion, in, with, and, and that's what political correctness does, Political correctness is essentially Jesus' qualities of love turned and made absolute, like compassion, inclusion of the alien, racial reconciliation, care for the disabled. And there's much good in many of those things that secular liberalism does. Uh, In fact, I I said this yesterday in that class, um, one experience that many of us, because we, we have a disabled daughter, one, one, uh, one experience that many of us had is, is uh, the schools were better at caring and including our daughter Kim than the church. Uh, that's changing a lot, um, you, you, know, oh, you know, it's over time. You know, in racial reconciliation, it was secular liberals who were going down south during the 50s and 60s um, not conservative evangelicals who are going down to help um, with the civil rights movement. So often, secular liberalism is, 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 has been ahead of the church. Now, why am I saying that? Because it's one reason why so many youth are walking away from Jesus. They're attracted to a better vision of the good. That's a uh, a, be- a better vision of beauty because secular liber- liberalism has every one of those attributes, compassion, racial reconciliation, cared for uh, the disabled, has a little J-curve inside of it. You have, to, you have to go down into a different world. 
you have to go down into that work of love. You have to reenact the incarnation. Now, the beauty of that, we as Christians have the spirit of Jesus and the map of Jesus, so we really have the power to do this and sustain it. Uh, to, we have the power to love. But many youth are being drawn away from Christianity. Like in our media, Christianity feels narrow, um, cold, judgmental, um, old-fashioned, unscientific. And what they present is a vision, which is Jesus secularized, of uh, compassion, inclusion, and all that kind of stuff. So the learning to live the J-curve is critical for us in a post-Christian, post-modern world for a bunch of reasons. One, life is is just playing a lot harder. Um, I bet you a number of you have been, had had, you know, parents divorced or friends, you know, just, I mean, as, as our culture is going through this moral collapse, life is getting harder for people. Uh, and, and the church is really feeling that at multiple levels. But it, it is a way for the church within itself to begin to show the beauty of Jesus. Let me go back to that opening seminar I had. Imagine if you were a young kid sitting in that, beginning to doubt your faith, and seeing these, these mature men and women in the seminar um, uh, not pay attention. You would think, hmm, something's wrong. And what, what everyone is hunting for and what you have the right to hunt for is authenticity. Does the gospel I preach describe how I relate to people? Does it shape my life? Is my life all about me, or am I in a life of love that continually reenacts the dying and rising of Jesus? So that's really the heart of what I want to say. I have, believe it or not, a whole bunch more stuff, but um, I'll have to wait till some other time. You know, let me just th let me just pause for a couple questions. We we really should end here in a couple minutes, but I'd still love to see if there's any questions anybody has, or comments, or things you disagree with. Yes. Um, I think, right, um, I think that one of the best examples of that is from, um, 2 Corinthians 12, and maybe I'll just close with that for the sake of time, where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. He has this thorn in the flesh that he has prayed three times to get rid of, and, um, and, uh, it, 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 it weakens Paul. It, th this thorn brings Paul into a death, and it weakens him. And he, remember, I, 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 Paul is not a stoic. If he has suffering, he wants to get rid of it, okay? He, he doesn't, you know, wear, you know, beat himself. That's one of the things that Luther reacted to was the, the um, in the medieval um, mind that, that 
kind of a stoicism, like suffering's good for you, you know. That's not Paul at all. But he, so he wants to get rid of suffering. So he, he, says, he says, Jesus, um, would you take this thorn away from me? We don't know what it is. And, um, and, and, and Jesus uh, gives his answer is he gives Paul the narrative of the dying and rising of Jesus, of, of, of his own dying and rising. He says, Paul, I need you weak because of the danger of pride in your life. This thorn can t- kills pride. It weakens you. And when you're weakened, that weakness is where, my, is where resurrection comes out of your life. That's the power of my spirit. The launching pad of resurrection is my weakness. Just like in the gospel with justification by faith, we bring our inability to the table. God wants that to be our whole life, that we come to life weakened, not proud. So Paul, as soon as he realizes this, he is thankful for the dying, the weakness, because he says, now Christ's power is perfected in me. And then, you know, here's the J, and then it repeats again. In other words, God doesn't answer Paul's prayer to take away the thorn. That thorn is Paul's gift to drive him into Christ. I mean, that's just a partial answer. Uh, you know, there, there's many complexities to that. Uh, but we should, I should let you go. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this time to sit and reflect um, on the wonder of uh, the dying and rising of Jesus, how it's in the past and in the future we look to forward to our own resurrection, but I thank you that it's also in the present and that, that uh, it's where we get to know Jesus. And I pray that for the students here, that they would, that they would participate in a very real way in their lives in the dying and rising of your son. Amen.